Welcome to this week's episode of Being Human. I am here with Sunny Bonnell. She is the co-author of the book, Rare Breed. I'm bringing it up on the screen there with all my notes. A guide to success for the defiant, dangerous and different. Uh, and there's two words in that subtitle that drew me to the book, like different. I like, I definitely very often um, identify myself as being a bit different or a bit weird. Um, and so how, how could I turn that into a success? That was like the question in my head. Uh, that drew me into the book. And then there's just like a ton of great stories along that theme. So Sunny, welcome to the show. Very excited to to take a dive into this. Very excited to be here. Thanks for having me. Yeah. And could you, well, I must also compliment you on that wonderful hat. For those of you just listening, Sunny <laughs> is a magnificent <laughs> hat. Uh, fedora. Uh, yes. Fedora is what the word you're uh, looking for. <laughs> a fedora. Yeah. There you go. My, um, exposing my lack of hat vocabulary there yeah um, fedoras, so, fedoras were actually a sign of uh i think um sort of feminist rebellion a little bit uh back in <laughs> back in the day so it's very fitting for somebody like me all right <laughs> good um so yes we should fill fill uh you know the listeners in a bit can can you give us a little bit of background a bit of backstory yeah sure so we dive into the book yeah, well, uh, so my co-founder and partner and co-author, Ashley and I, uh, you know, met in a Chicago snowball fight in our teens, grew up together, went to college together, and in our early 20s, dropped out of uh, college together to start a an agency, a branding agency called Motto with just $250. And we had no prior business experience. Everyone told us that we would fail. And that was more than a decade ago. Uh, and we have now since led Motto to become one of the top branding agencies in the country. Uh, we have really become successful for helping, uh, you know, leaders and teams sort of push boundaries, uh, you know, break through the, the norm, you know, and, and really activate positive change inside companies. And in 2019, we released a book called Rare Breed, A Guide to Success for the Defiant, Dangerous and Different that we co-authored together. And it was really, uh, 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 we started sort of with a curious question based on our own sort of journey, you know, of tearing up the rule book and starting from nothing and having people fill us with doubt and uncertainty that we were not good enough or we were too much of something in order to succeed. And so the thesis of the book really is what if you could take the parts of yourself that other people criticize, traits they call defiant, dangerous, and different. And what if we could turn those same traits, those same so-called vices into our virtues, into uh, traits that we could leverage for uh, success, traits that we could use to open doors and traits to eventually live into our full potential. And so that really became the, uh, the, 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 the kind of the crux of, of, of the book's content. And in that book, we talk about seven traits, which are rebellious, audacious, obsessed, weird, hot-blooded, hypnotic, and emotional. These seven traits are mostly seen both from a young age as, uh, you know, counterintuitive to your success. You should, you should make them invisible for the most part if you want to succeed in order to climb that ladder and continue moving forward through your career. And we believe and have certainly proved it with our own career that not only should you lean into that but that you should own all of who you are, not just the pretty parts. Right, right. Yeah, that's a big, that comes through again, again, own it all. 
Um, Own it all. Uh, yeah, and as I was reading, I, I, you know, there was definitely, definitely, it sort of felt a bit uncomfortable reading it because there's definitely parts of myself that I'm not fully owning yet. And um, right, yeah, which is which is the case for most people. You know, th- think about it. I mean, we're all born with certain traits, right? Uh, they emerge at different points in our lives, and sometimes those traits are, for lack of a better word, they're they're silenced. You know, they're silenced or awakened at different points within our life, and this happens through you know, conditioning. This is, this is uh, from our parents and teachers and friends and people who, you know, essentially want the best for us, uh, you know, don't want us to get hurt. So they sort of try to mash out those traits. You know, they, they don't want you to be rebellious. They don't want you to be audacious. They don't want you to be emotional, right? We're always taught to kind of quiet those, those inner, inner traits. And I think what, we've learned and what we've seen again and again is that if you can awaken them in the, in the, in, 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 and sort of not, and hear your own voice, I think what it allows you to do is chart your own path and find a way forward that truly feels uh, that it's your own, you know, whereas I think even from a young age, our parents are notorious for this of kind of envisioning a life for us that we haven't lived yet. And rare breed really aims to, awaken the parts of people that haven't heard themselves in a long time, you know, perhaps they're in a job that they're not connected to, or they're in a life they're not connected to. And, you know, they've been conditioned into this. And if rare breed has done anything, I think in the market recently is that it's made people who have been made invisible feel visible again. And also the work that we now do with teams and organizations and leaders is that we are finding that we can, uh, educate them on not only how to look for the rare breed to innovate and be within your organization, but also how to retain them, how to keep them, because that's what you want. You know, rare breeds are so important to moving the world forward. And yet we societally try to push them out most of the time. Yeah. Yeah. No, you're, you're so right about that. And they're just untapped, you know, they're, they're the source. There's so much the source of creativity and innovation in, in society, right? It's, it's the, it's the weirdness and the, the those rare ideas in all of us that move <laughs> yeah, us forward. Exactly. From, from your perspective then. So what are, you know, if you don't mind sharing, like what are some of those aspects of, of yourself that you've had to identify and learn to develop and, and use out there? Like, you know, f- for you. Yeah. I mean, as a young kid, I was definitely um, quite the wild card. You know, my family, I'm the youngest of three. So my, I was, I I was, you know, they called me the flu because (laughs) there's actually a huge gap between my brother and my sister and me. Um, So, you know, they, they weren't, they weren't expecting me. Let's put, let's put it that way. And I think they weren't expecting me to be so, so rogue, you know, at 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 a young age, but I was, I was a bit of a wild card. And I think I had sort of entrepreneurial tendencies at a very young age. So when I was in third grade, for example, I would take, I would take this, my mom would make these incredible lunches and, you know, in in brown paper bags and she would send me to school and I would trade them because they were so good. (laughs) I would trade them because, you know, we grew up, I didn't have a lot of money. And so uh, I would, I, I, I wanted to break dance. And so I would trade my lunches and swap shoes with people that had Nikes so I could break dance after school and then give them back. And, you know, that was happening in like third, fourth grade. And I think my family was just like, I don't know what we're going to do with this one. Right. Um, but you know, that, that kind of audacity, right. Was, was really inherent 
very early on. I, I don't think we had the words for it, but I was definitely an audacious child. I was always reaching beyond my grasp. I was always sort of visionary on a, on a lot of levels. And it was no surprise that I would drop out of pre-vet school to start a agency with no background experience and running a company at all. You know, we were in our early 20s. There was no blueprint. There was no founder or uh, anyone we could look up to essentially that could tell us how to run a branding agency, let alone what it meant to be a branding agency. So the fact that we did that was audacious in, its, in and of itself. Um, and, you know, when I take the when I took the rare breed quiz, which we I'm sure you'll mention this in the notes, but we developed a, a quiz with a professor and psychologist where you take you answer 28 questions and it tells you what that dominant rare breed virtue is. So every time I take it, I get audacious. And I think it really stems from that entrepreneurial background. You know, both my uh, grandfathers were entrepreneurs. One of them couldn't read or write. He was a coal miner. Uh, he would leave with a car and come home with a pistol. And, uh, you know, he knew the art of negotiating. And, you know, they both started their companies with nothing, nothing but guts and vision. Um, my dad, the same way. He started his company, I think, with less money than I did. And no, no college degrees, nothing like that. And, you know, he just uh, wrestled vision and in, in, in hardship forward, you know, so that he could create something that mattered. And I only think you do that when you sort of have that audacious backbone. There, mm. There's no, there, you know, and I certainly have that. I think, I think it runs in me probably pretty deep from, from a real young age. Yeah. And so just what took me to vet, vet school to start a branding agency. Like <laughs> my dream was always to be a veterinarian ever since I was really, really young. You got fed and, up staring at cows' asses. It was like, <laughs> yeah, I mean, I was, I need I to was, make logos. I know it was so strange. Um, no, I was, I was, so I'm a musician as well. And I, uh, you know, was actually moonlighting as a graphic designer while I was in uh, pre-vet. So I was trying to study to be a veterinarian and then at the same time, uh, you know, a musician. So I would, I would sort of dabble in the side a little bit of making, you know, band posters and, and CD art and things like that. You know, again, this is like, you know, early two thousands. So I'm, you know, making this kind of work and I would, I found that I was just so passionate, you know, I'd stay up all night, um, get very little sleep. And I would do this all night long, just trying to, to kind of fill this, this, this thing that, that I was feeling, you know, and, and, and no idea that I would I turn it into a career, but um, certainly that's what happened. Right. Right. And then you, you just, yeah, I mean, that's the audacity because a lot of people might, might, they might, they might have that passion and they might feel it in their bones at some level, but the, 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 the voice might overpower them saying, Right. Yeah, 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 but you can't just run, you know, vet, vet schools, you know, but I'm, I'm channeling my own parents and, you know, my own self-talk here, which, which might be something along those, yes, but you're going to get a safe salary and, and you know, you're going to get a good job with that. And, and, and what the hell are you doing thinking you can right. sort of jump off that train? Right. But you well, obviously were able to like say no to that voice or, or perhaps it wasn't really there for you. I don't know. Yeah. I think, I think it was, that voice was there for me, but I also, you know, you, you, you'd mentioned that those voices and, and our parents saying that, you know, there's a lot of conditioning, as I, as I mentioned earlier, that happens where we, we stay on the straight and narrow because we don't know that there is other options for us, you know? And I think then I was just, uh, you know, we were willing to take the risk and I, I don't know that we knew what we were getting into, certainly didn't know at the time, but, um, and certainly didn't know that we'd be met with such opposition. You know, we were in a really small town, uh, that had been sort of dominated by only a handful of, of advertising agencies, 
agencies, there was no one um, calling themselves uh, branding agencies back back then. And the fact that we sort of came out swinging in that way, you know, I, I don't think we knew it at the time, but we certainly were a threat. And, you know, we could have never imagined that two, two young girls could be, you know, at the time we were, we were, you know, young girls, women, um, that we would be a threat in that way or any kind of, uh, you know, considered in that way. And I think that that there was a time where, you know, we were probably a couple of years into business where we began to have that doubt. You know, there was a lot of doubt and how we even came up with the book idea was we had a conversation with my dad, also entrepreneurial, as I said, who sat us down and said, you know, we were like, we don't think we can do this, right? We're, we're, we're broke. We, we don't have any clients. <laughs> no one knows who we are. Everybody thinks that we're, we shouldn't be doing this. You know, we have no background in this. Like, what are we doing? And he said, um, well, you two are a rare breed. You know, not everybody's going to, not everybody's going to get you. And you, you have to succeed because of who you are, not despite who you are. So, so really lean into that because that is the thing that will make you too successful is by owning all of those pieces, you know, the, the rebellious nature, the audacity that we love so much, those are your selling points. Those are your superpowers. And you should really lean into that. And what's really interesting about that story is that we filed that away in 2007 and didn't speak of it again until 2018, when we began writing the book, because we were like, what is it about, you know, having now worked with in, in our role, both Ashley and I's role as leadership and brand consultants, where we go into companies and organizations of all shapes and sizes. We've been in the biggest brands in the world, Google, Hershey's, Microsoft. Um, and we have seen it all. We've seen the good, bad, and the surprising of, of these leaders. And what it taught us was that all of the most uh, incredible thinkers, the most audacious visionaries, the most obstinate individuals were the ones that were doing the most incredible work. And they were often temperamental and defiant and dangerous and a little bit odd. And, you know, when we started to put all that together, we kind of connected it back to our own story and then began working with leaders on those exact same traits and then sort of made the connection to say, we should write a book about this. Because what's interesting about the phrase rare breed is that it means unordinary among the kind. So you are one of a kind. We're all one of a kind. And what's really interesting about that phrase specifically is if you look back historically of the way we define people who are different, we always say it in a way that makes them feel that they are still an outlier. You're using words that say you're on the outside looking in. You're a misfit, right? You're the ugly piece of fruit. You're you're the outlier. You're um, on the black out sheep. looking in. You're the <laughs> yeah. You're the black sheep. You're the uh, you're the square peg in the round hole, right? And, you know, we were like, what if we could, you know, come up with something that was, that was really a sort of a badge of honor, you know, that, that, it would, that it would flip that meaning on its head. And I think rare breed does that, you know, it's, it's a phrase that, you know, we've got teams and cultures now calling themselves rare breed cultures, rare breed right. teams. And it, you, you shift from this thing of like, oh, diversity is a checkbox of like skin color to now looking for diversity of thought. You want those rare breeds on your team. You want rare breed thinkers because they are the key to your success. The problem societally is we don't know what to do with them. We were intrigued by them, but we don't actually know how to get them and retain them. So much of our work was about around the book was really about the individual, right? The change maker, 
who identified as a rare breed and saw themselves as a rare breed. But now what the book has turned into, which has been so exciting, is that the book is now turned into a tool that that change maker can go to their companies and say, look, you guys are a bunch of, you know, <laughs> ordinary red tape thinkers. Like we should bring this thinking in. And not only should we be looking for these people, but we should really be trying to celebrate them. And that's the work that we're doing now, which is, you know, we've moved away kind of from doing a tremendous amount of branding to now working one-to-one with leaders and teams to help them think like rare breeds. Well, it's almost like you're going the next level down because where do those great ideas for branding come from, right? right. Well, they come right. from somewhere and you're, you're yeah. helping, I guess, companies tapping into, am I right? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, yeah. I mean, it, yeah, you're absolutely, uh, you know, you're, you're right. I, I never thought about it like that, but that's an interesting way of thinking about it. It's, it's sort of one level down where it's sort of like, you know, now we're, we're, we're sort of coming into the company and saying, well, in order for this, you know, brand, in order for it to thrive and continue um, innovating and to stay relevant is that you need these sort of, you know, uh, these traits within your company in order to to do that. So what's really fun is when we go into a company and we have the leadership team take the quiz and we find out exactly what rare breeds are on there um, in, in, in the team and um, how they can actually work better together, because it gives you another level of understanding when you know, for example, that I'm rebellious or you're emotional, it allows us to communicate in a very different way because now we begin to understand how we see the world, how we feel in the world. And that's a, that's a really interesting uh, point, a lens to look through, if that makes sense. Yeah. Is it possible to go through that questionnaire and, and then you're not rare in any way? <laughs> Can people feel a bit deflected? Yeah, I think, I think, well, no, you, you definitely have a trait there. We all have a trait that's pretty dominant. Um, We just, the difference between rare breeds and everyone else is that rare breeds have really tapped into that. Right. So they, they know the difference. They know when they're sort of leveraging it and utilizing it. They know when it's at work within them. A lot of people don't, the majority, the vast majority of people on the planet don't know that. And the reason that we wrote this and the reason that we developed the quiz and the training and the workshops and everything that we're doing at the leadership level is because uh, we want to change that stigma. You know, we want, we want to help more people really understand that they are in fact unique, right? Like w- there's, there's no carbon copies of any one of us. So, so, so in, just by the very nature of you being here, you're rare, uh, the, the, you know, but, but we've codified it in such a way that it allows you to begin to dial that in a little bit more and figure out where, where is that trade at work? You know, if you move through the world, uh, rebellious and when, when you take the quiz, I think a lot of people have aha moments where they're like, all right, like this makes sense to me, you know, and a lot of people do identify with the other six, but you know, there's always one that's really a sort of dominant. It's primary. It's always at work. And when you take the quiz and you kind of understand what that trait is, or you read the book, for example, not only do you understand what trait you are, but you also understand, and we go into great detail in the book, what's really kind of, I think, clever about the book is, is that we go into the light and dark sides of it. Meaning the yeah. very um, question that you ask yourself is what wolf do you feed, right? Um, the, 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 <laughs> the, the, the good one or the evil one. And these, the, the reason that they're traits and their vices is because they are in fact dark, you know, they're as powerful as they are perilous. And it's important to know which one of those is at work, because when you are sort of um, when you don't know what's 
what dominant virtue is at work within you, it's very easy to let that go rogue. And then you, you don't really have any direction and you don't know how it's playing out for you. You know, it could just be very destructive and you could just be considered a troublemaker or, you know, you're cast out of organizations that you work for. When you start to tap into the, to, to the good part of that trait, what you find is that your career opens up, your life opens up and you become a little bit more efficient at harnessing the true spirit of what you're doing and the, and the, and the gifts that you have to offer and how that then gets realized, why it's so important that organizations also understand this at the organizational level is because most of them don't actually know how to manage or leverage rare breeds within the organization because they've kind of, you know, they're, they're, they're in the dark side of the trait, right? They're a little bit, they're, they make people uneasy. So instead of making them uneasy, the goal is to actually make them work for you in a much, much more powerful way. Yeah. Yeah. And, and I, and I contrast it with my experience. I mean, it's been a bit of a while since I've like been a corporate employee, but when I was in those, those machines, let's say you, you'd have these role descriptions, right? Like a manager or senior manager or whatever the firm you is, you tend to have this, right? And right. then there'd be these broad categories of like capabilities you need to have at that level. And, and all of the conversations you had about your growth was like, how do you start to, you know, exhibit behaviors at, at that next level up? And like, how can you meet the expectations or exceed the expectations of your current role description in order to get there? And it was all so sort of boxed off. There was just no space for this kind of conversation, which would be like, okay, Richard, let's look at what makes you different and weird <laughs> and dangerous. Mm-hmm. And let's think about how we can harness that in a good way, because that's going to bring you into a more passionate place in your life. And it's going to help us and everybody around you. Uh, to grow at the same time. Like that was just nowhere to unheard be found, of. like that conversation, unheard of, there you are. Yeah, and I think that that's our entire mission, right? Is to change that conversation. We want to be able to educate teams and leaders on how important it is to not only hire for this this type of person, but also, you know, again, as I said, to retain them, uh, use them to innovate, um, really, you know, uh, push push them to, be their best and not be afraid that it might not be what you expected. Yeah. 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 No, that That's a big part of it, isn't it? It's just at the leadership level, it's like stepping into that uncertainty, you know, what, what what's going to happen if I release these beasts, right? Like that, there's something <laughs> let, like that going on in people's the, heads. Uh, like. Yeah. You let the lunatics across the asylum. I mean, you know, look like leaders are, they're supposed to be and possess traditional conventional leadership traits, right? We're steady, we're decisive, we're consistent, we're calculated, we're diplomatic, we're logical. You know, we know that these qualities are important, but rare breeds, they think, act, and communicate in it with an entirely different frequency, an entirely different mindset. And that mindset can not only be applied to you as an individual, but that mindset can also be applied to your entire organization. Most companies are afraid. Once they've reached a certain pinnacle and they're business. They're too large to turn back. They're too, they've lacked the, the, the ability to be nimble, to, to be agile, you know, to, to, to really uh, use that mindset as, as a competitive sharp knife, right? And what the rare breed mindset is doing is it's, te- it's tearing conventional thinking apart. It's eating the status quo for breakfast, you know, and, and rare breeds, they already, uh, you know, they're already on the payroll. You have them on the payroll right now. You just don't know it. 
(laughs) or you do and you fired them or they've left. That's the key. They've either, they've either went and completely redefined an industry or a category and you missed out. You know, you're looking for the neurotic obsession with minute detail, the angry intolerance for injustice, the absurd sense of whimsy, you know, the, the, the rebel sort of gleeful attempt uh, for what doesn't work. These, these are all qualities that actually transform businesses, you know, in our book and in our workshop, we teach that you see them, you feed them, and then you get the fuck out of their way. Yeah. But that is terrifying to some executives, isn't it? <laughs> well, yeah, but listen, you know, the Harvard Business Review published a study that said fewer than 10 percent of people work in companies that encourage nonconformity. That is staggering. Mm. So what you're basically saying is that leave your real self at the door. And in doing so, how many great minds, how many how much innovation are we losing out on because we punish those for even trying? Yeah, no, that's so true. And you touched on, you used an interesting word there. You said that this is part of big organizations becoming agile, right? And that's a big theme on this show. And we've had lots of people from in the software community, uh, you know, talking about agility. And often the focus is on like, what are the processes? What are the customs? you know, that we need to adopt as like a a tech savvy or a tech oriented business in order to, you know, develop software efficiently and be able to change and mold our software as we, as, you know, as we respond to the market. But what's interesting is the the very first tenet of the, of the Agile Manifesto is individuals and interactions over processes and tools. And what you're talking about there is like embrace these individuals, right? That's at the heart of agility, like embrace them for all that they are. Uh, and build out from there, like th- th- this, this sort of obsession with the processes has got to be secondary. Yeah, because at times like you, what you do is you end up by, 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 by putting so many sort of cages around us, we, we end up uh, suppressing the very talent that we had hoped to, to, to invoke. And, you know, all these organizations we work with them all the time. You know, they want the creative ninja. They want the goal crushing account reps, the tech demigods, you know, but during the interview, like, what do we do? What do most employers do? Well, they tell these rare breeds who they want them to be. You know, here's our rules, follow them. Here's our culture, pour yourself into it. And what we're not understanding, I think, is that people are the culture. And by encouraging uh, these individuals to be who they are, flaws and all, respecting and rewarding that individuality word gets out and soon you're able to retain and attract the kind of talent that you want. And then you're building something that everyone wants to be a part of. It's just incredibly difficult to do because we are wired to create conditions that are not, uh, you know, that they don't have questions. You, You don't want question marks. Most people don't like question marks. They don't like to be uncertain and uncertainty breeds, uh, you know, uh, negativity and, and ultimately it breeds, breeds conformity. So, you know, the next thing, you know, you're, you're creating a culture. You think you're creating a culture of, you know, do you fit here? But what you ultimately are doing is you're, you're pushing out diversity of thought. Yeah. And what you need is that diversity of thought in order to continue changing how the world works. Yeah. No, that's, 
that's interesting and that you know that why you know why do we cling to conformity and there's something that so many of us find solace in right and comfort in and um gary hamill's got a good, great new book called uh he's a management thinker and called humanocracy and he has this concept of the recovering bureaucrat right and uh like uh as if somehow we're addicted <laughs> to conformity addicted to the process addicted to the routine and and then we get caught in all these games in order to sort of manage our status within the bureaucracy and like the first step is to accept we're part of that you know we've been complicit in creating this bureaucracy we've been part of that game and and then we can start to distance ourselves from it i mean so as the question is do people need to go through some kind of almost deconditioning before they can fully embrace your message well, that's a good question. I think that I think that there is a bit of trauma that happens with people that have been in organizations that have sort of they've kept their head down and kept their jobs, you know, and they've not been allowed to fully realize themselves. Yeah, but I think that happens in life in general, right? So, I think we're what you have to realize is that it's happening. The world is set up to conform you. And what this is doing is just educating that there are additional ways of looking at this problem. And what you want for somebody like that is to, uh, I'll give you a great example. I had somebody reach out to me. Um, we get a lot of letters from people that, are, that have read the book and have made some pretty crazy life-changing decisions after reading it. You know, and I'm like, oh no, <laughs> uh, it's, it's a good thing. But, you know, you just see people doing some, some really radical things, you know, having, having sort of tapped into this and really, it's like it clicked. and. Uh, I got a letter from someone who had said or an email essentially that had said that they had been fired from every job that they had ever worked with or ever worked for, and that they were just really bouncing around and having a really difficult time. They had found an organization that they were a part of, but they were afraid to tell them that they were gay because for fear that they would be cast out. And I just couldn't believe it. Cause I'm like, God, this is like 2021. I can't, I can't believe we're still having this conversation, but we are. And, and, and organizations still do. She was afraid to tell them that she was gay. She was afraid to tell her colleagues that she was gay because she worked mostly in a male dominated um, industry. So, you know, that made me think about, well, are we trying to fit ourselves into organizations because we have nowhere to go? So instead of creating more organizations, right, the question that we have to be asking is why are organizations not more set up to create the conditions to allow rare breeds to thrive? I began asking the question, well, well, how, how do you, perhaps there's another organization for you out there that would love you for all of who you are, respect you for all of who you are, you know, welcome that diversity. Uh, yeah, I think that that, that, that mere fact that she's even having to think about that is so discouraging and tells me a lot about what's happening in the world. And I think, you know, we, we, what, what we need to be doing is trying to create or trying to help rare breed individuals who identify in this way, sort of leveraged it and tapped into it to find homes, you know, where they can, even if they're there for a short period of time, that they're able to do their very best work. And then if they have to move on, they find another place that also awakens that potential and allows them to thrive. That's the goal. You know, you're not, I don't know that we're meant to just lock in somewhere and stay forever. You know, we don't grow. Um, yeah. But 
if you, if you do have an organization where people are staying, you know, the goal would be to try to continue to challenge them and, and, and perhaps, you know, pay attention to things that or gifts that maybe they have that you don't even know, you know, some, some, I, I talked to somebody at, um, that had worked for Microsoft and he's like, you know, I never even sat down with my superior for lunch. It's like, I was there for a year and a half and I never had anyone sit down with me for lunch. And I thought that was extremely telling. Yeah. I mean, I, I got somebody in my family who works for a big advertising firm and they'd never, um, I'm not sure they ever met their boss. You know, yeah. he ever met his boss the whole time he was there. He was there for like two or three years. Yeah. Um, face we don't to ask face. questions. We don't want to know. You don't want to know. That's the, that's the reality. Like you don't want to ask those questions. I mean, not every organization again is like this, but, but the majority are. There's a few, I have been in them. Uh, Ashley and I have, have worked with some of these teams where the, the, the rare breed culture, the rare breed mindset it is very much alive and working within this team and organization. And sometimes they are software and engineering companies where they are probably the, the, the least sort of tapped into this that you would imagine, you know, and the fact that they're able to create these kind of conditions is, is unbelievable because I've been in some incredibly toxic com- uh, cultures and I can tell you that I would never want to work there. You can pay me to work there. You know, and uh, but I have been in a few rare, rare companies where I've seen this really working and thriving. And it is extraordinary what the happiness that's there, the joy that is there uh, around the workplace, because they're truly, truly alive, you know, and not just alive in the sense of, you know, they're they're like alive in their job. And their work, because again, you think about it, like our work becomes our identity. So if you're going to spend that much time with the people that is not your family, wouldn't you want to work somewhere where you were seen and heard and made visible and truly tapped into and awakened and excited and expired, you know, inspired? Absolutely. It's what we all want. Yeah. Yeah. And and I, I bag it on about this example a lot on the show but just because it just inspires me so much there's a company in the uk called propellernet which is another mm. kind of d- design agency and um one of the one of their practices is um when they ask people you know in the in the interview one of the questions is when hiring people like what is your dream and it isn't like what's your dream to achieve in the company it's like what's your dream dream in life right, right. like what's right. your dream and then they have this uh, practice where every month they pull a ball out of a, a lottery machine. And if your number comes up, um, <laughs> the whole company tries to make your dream happen. Mm. And, and, and like this one individual, it was to go um, on safari. So the company created a partnership with a safari company in Namibia <laughs> and had her go and work in this safari in Namibia as part of this joint venture that had a dream come true, right? I mean, there's Amazing. just a ton of examples like that. And yeah. like companies can set themselves up in this way. And when sometimes when I share that story, they're like, oh, you know, that just sounds like a gimmick because it seems so far from like what might be possible for their organization that they almost have right. to dismiss it. Yeah. Yeah. I, 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 I've been in organizations that d- do things like that and I don't think it's gimmicky at all. I think it's, it, it really, uh, it, it allows people to be, uh, you know, beyond like, you know, w- what is on your plate today? right? In terms of your work schedule, you're going much, much deeper into someone's hopes and dreams. And we all have them and they are all not always tied to our job. They're, they're bigger than that. And, and, you know, and sometimes they are tied to our job, but 
the goal for us as uh, as as leaders is to understand that we have to create safe spaces and cultures for people to show up. And, you know, if we can ask those questions, how's your family? What's going on with you? You know, if we can, if we can um, ask people like, what's the most important aspect of your identity and why, you know, um, what do you want to tell us about yourself? That's supposed to be, you know, (laughs) uh, that could be an insult, but that you're secretly proud of. Right. Um, you know, those are, those are really interesting questions that you can ask, you can ask, uh, folks that, that really, um, shed light into actually who they are and who they are outside of their day-to-day job. Yeah. But, but all of these more searching, these deeper questions, we can only ask them as leaders of others, if we're to the, to the degree to which we're prepared to go there ourselves. And I think that's so often the reason why people don't latch onto this is because they realize if they ask others what their dream is, they've got to be reflecting on that themselves and if they're in a place where none of their dreams are being fulfilled of course they're not going to go and want to ask that of other people so i i think it's it's so much of this starts with the individual leader and like where they're at in fact, yeah, in fact abs- perhaps it all does <laughs> yeah no no i mean it absolutely starts with that you know what, what we've really found interesting about the audience who's reading the book is a lot of times it's, it is, I said, a change maker, you know, who is in a company that perhaps they have felt this way or have maybe been in several jobs that they've sort of been trying to find their way. And they ultimately bring that thinking to the, to the organization because they know at the root level, that's where it starts. It starts with leadership. And if you are not willing to be an empathetic leader or a servant leader or, you know, to, to think in those ways, um, to adopt that sort of rare breed mindset, I think that it doesn't allow you to open the door for safety for others. Yeah, yeah, that's right. And and the, uh, yeah, the safety and and we can only create safety to the degree that you know we feel safe to go into those spaces ourselves, don't we? So yeah, uh, we 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 are we are always um, practicing a prettier picture than what is real. I see this all the time in companies. I work with a company. Uh, we work with a company um, that is a that is a tech company, and they practice open book management. And on the screen, when you walk in, you actually see like where the revenues are, and they're incredibly transparent about everything that's happening within the organization, so that you uh, begin to as a as a as a part of that team, you realize that your effort and what it you know there's profit sharing, there's all sorts of ways that they're taking care of the team. But to, to, to open your books in that way, to be that transparent is so rare. Many companies won't even, uh, would never even think of doing something like that. So I've seen it at work and it's really, really transformational and, extra, and incredibly inspiring to see how many people like really feel uh, part, of, part of something greater and, and also don't feel like they're being, you know, cog in a wheel. Yeah, yeah. No, no, that's right. And we've got lots of examples of that on this show of people who've taken that transparency, you know, all of their board meeting notes are publicly available, not just to the yeah. company, to anybody. Yeah. And, right. You know, Small Giants is a great, a great example of that. You know, I know, I know Bo uh, Burlingham really, really well. And uh, I think Small Giants is a, is a fantastic um, concept and also, uh, you know, open book management. I can't think of the name of that. I think that's the book or open book or something like that. I can't think of the, it's, it's spacing me at the moment. You might know it. But um, a lot of companies that we work with who are also uh, who are small giants, as well as practice open book management, uh, tend to have those very similar sort of values 
and tend to have really amazing cultures as, as a result of it. And they're all, you know, diverse and quirky and interesting and, you know, full, full of vibrancy. Yeah. Well, that's the grounding, isn't it then? Because if, if, if if we can all be transparent at that level in it, okay, now, now maybe I could be more transparent about, yeah, those parts of myself that I tend to shut off, right? I start to feel a bit safer and I can start to express a bit more and yeah. Absolutely. You're Absolutely. kind of given permission, a bit like the way your dad gave you permission, right? To, at some level to like own yourself, all those parts of yourself. It's he like probably you can, thought, you can... <laughs> well, if you can't beat them, join them. Uh, you know, but I'm sure he saw a little bit of himself in me. And I think, you know, what that was, see what, what I think is really interesting about rare breed specifically is that in order to see other rare, rare breeds, you have to see it in yourself. Yeah. And I think what he did in that moment was validate and witness yeah. me. He witnessed yeah. us at that point and sort of, you know, we went from sort of being making ourselves feel invisible and having other people sort of doubt and taking that chatter in as if it were our own. You be, you know, having someone who sort of says, I see you, right. And I, and I, and I, and I respect you and I, and I see your potential. You need those guide guide people along the way. You need other rare breeds to mark you. Otherwise you kind of get lost and you, you, you may never find the path, you know? And I think that's, what's really powerful about having someone again, you know, I I have to credit my dad for the concept of the book. You know, we have to pay homage to him for, for being able to even distill that in us, that, that it was possible. And that we were in fact, the very traits that everyone was telling us were obstinate and temperamental and difficult were actually the things that were probably going to help us, you know, become successful. Um, and the fact that, uh, you know, we, we, we used to have this saying, we still do, you know, sometimes we're hired for the same reasons we're fired. Yeah. I I relate to that. (laughs) Yeah. I certainly Well, that's why you're doing your own thing, right? Like clearly it sounds like you were like, you had that, you're a rare breed and you did, you started to, to carve your own path, you know, because you couldn't, you couldn't find somewhere that probably got Richard. Well, yeah, I think that's right. And I think what the, you know, I think the magic of this book is there's so many examples of people doing that. It's like, yeah, I suppose in some ways this, this book could serve as your witness, right? Because as you read it, as I read it, I saw myself in some of these stories and I was like, okay, you know, and it just at some level allows me, okay, well, maybe I could stay, take another, another leap into my own weirdness, right? Like how far can I push this? Maybe I'll start wearing a fedora for my next. (laughs) podcast like if you do i need to see a photo <laughs> proof of this <laughs> well, i was wearing fedoras back when they weren't cool you know there was a period of and now who knows but like no i i absolutely think it's true i think you know we tell a lot of really creative stories stories that you probably haven't heard before that uh are exemplifying this that not only the trait in the the individual as a leader but also traits in uh you know in in the craft in which they're working you know we tell a story about um, you know, uh, coach Kelly, who, uh, is a coach for the, uh, uh, um, Pulaski Academy Bruins. And he learned through mathematical equations that you, he, well, he asked the question, why do we punt on the fourth down? Why do we punt the ball on the fourth down? Why do we always do that? So he, he just had a simple question. Why, why do we do that? And so we learned through mathematics that if you didn't punt the ball, you'd have a better chance of winning. So he ends up, you know, creating this entire (laughs) media frenzy. And he's just like, you know, people are calling him out. They're like, this man's crazy. You know, 
And lo and behold, he was able to win several championships. He's been able to prove the theory again and again and again. And now he's being sought out by uh, the NFL to share some of the secrets. And all he did was ask why. It was just a simple question. We, 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 we accept things as, as they are without ever really questioning why they are the way that they are. So when you have something that presents itself in such a way, there was like, we've always done this way and rare breeds loathe that they, they, they never thrive when it is, you know, why have we always done it this way? Uh, but you know, you want, you want people to ask that question so that we can find alternative solutions to things that we've been accepting for years and years and decades and, you know, centuries to be totally frank. I mean, uh, the fact that we've always punted the, da- the, the ball on fourth down is a curious question that no one was asking. Yeah. Yeah. No, that's, that's true. And, and sometimes, you know, and it's like taking this space, right? Cause that, that's a guy who's created space for himself to ask questions. That's the other thing that comes to mind now. And when I think about my own journey and why I, one of the, you, like one of the reasons I, I came out of, um, the corporate life was one absolutely it was because like I, I, maybe at some level i didn't feel like i could fit but there was also all these parts of me that i just wanted time to explore right i wanted to go do some therapy i wanted to do this mm-hmm. i wanted to do that and i wanted to like do some and and it was just like i couldn't do that in the like and have to be in the office nine to five every day so there's also that i think there's something about like just the space giving people space right to to, to explore, um, you know, different parts of themselves, which just like the nine to five organizational life, it, it, it just, it's structurally set up. Even if you take out the culture and, you know, the leadership and all the rest of it, just the basic structure of yeah. living in organizations, you know, somehow suppresses that, you know, the, 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 the quirkiness in us. Well, I think as kids, you know, we have this sort of sense of wonder, that, you know, when we're young, we're, we're, we're made up of all these kind of obtuse thoughts and ideas and characters. And, you know, we're so willing to explore and to sort of pull that box out and, and, and play. And as we get older, we become less and less adventurous. You know, we, we, we lose our sense of wonder. And I think that, you know, where we need to come alive is, when we are on the train or in the car or, you know, where we're just having space, as you said, to allow ourselves to dream, which we don't often give ourselves the permission to do because so much is going on that we can't possibly give ourselves enough room to even try. And mm-hmm. I think if, if, if we can't do it at home, certainly we should be able to do some of that in, our, in, in the places where we spend the majority of our lives. Why can't we create the kind of play spaces or, or places where we can really create, uh, you know, I, I, I'm, I have a idea of creating like a rare breed lab where the most audacious thinkers and obsessed tinkerers and, you know, rebellious, uh, you know, fist throwers, like literally like come and descend upon this lab to, to create the most ridiculous ideas and, and see where we can, that could go. Uh, you know, I, I think that would be a, a really, well, that would be an interesting thing, wouldn't it? <laughs> that, that would be <laughs> A bunch of rare breeds. Yeah. I mean, I don't know. Rare Anyone's breed listening, island. Maybe you can, yeah. Rare breed island. I love that. You know, it's kind of like Necker Island, but rare breed island. Yeah. I think where we, you, all the misfits come to play with their toys, but yeah. essentially that's kind of what, what I would hope to see is that, you know, in rare breed is in fact, going in that direction where, you know, we've got ideas for like a conference where, you know, the most dangerous, defiant and different thinkers descend upon these conferences to, to share sort of world changing ideas. I have an idea for, you know, like a rare breed 
um, list. I mean, I, I think there's so much there. And even, um, you know, I was talking when we worked with Microsoft a while back, I was like, you guys need to create like a rare breed award where we, we, you know, really sort of reckon with somebody that's, that's, uh, you know, and award somebody that's, uh, done the most audacious thing, you know, and instead of just kicking them out, like, let's like, see where it goes, you know, <laughs> and they were like, that's really interesting. So who knows, you know, rare breed is a, an entire universe of, of, of ideas, but yeah, I, I think there's possibility there. And I think it could, it very well is changing, you know, every organization that we're going into that we're sharing some of these ideas and um, workshops and trainings, like it, it really does change them when, when they come out of it. So yeah. my hope would be to keep expanding that out further and further to arm more teams and, and leaders with the, you know, the knowledge of what and how to, to do this, because it, it, there is question marks. I'm sure, you know, the, the, the thing that comes to mind is if I let the, you know, lunatics out of the asylum, like what, what's going to happen, you know, will this complete, you know, it, will it create a, a, will it fracture our culture? You know, will we have people who are just, you know, the dark side of the trait, right? Like you don't want people who are abusive and abrasive and you, you don't want to let that run rampant in your organization, of course. Um, and that's not what we're talking about here, but I'm sure that that's goes through everybody's mind in terms of what that would, what that would mean for them if they were to have these types of individuals, you know, sort of in more of those leadership positions, I think you would, you would find those questions to be prominent, but I think they're absolutely, and we, we have, developed a framework that allows us to sort of prevent that from happening while leveraging the best parts of the people that you have. Well, that, well, that's interesting because as you were speaking, I was immediately coming to mind is that a lot of that is about trust, right? Tr tr trusting this kind of peer interactions, we, we, you know, will just naturally modulate that. And, but, but I'm interested, like uh, what, what's the thinking you've done there in terms of. Well, so some of it has been around the, the being able to reveal some of the traits within the team. It's also been establishing like what rare breed thinking is, what it's not, mm. uh, being able to help organizations communicate better and more effectively using some of the, this lens. Another thing is we've also developed a tool called the rare breed brand wheel, which allows you to kind of through the seven traits, be able to see where your organization sits. So for example, if you're kind of a rebellious organization, but you don't feel like that totally is authentic, you know, where would you might chart out in one of those traits and how can we deploy some of that rare breed thinking across the organization to get more of where we want to go? So um, it's sort of, you know, developing out new ideas, new infrastructures to allow some of this to take place. Uh, and it is, you know, some of it's light touch, but then other things are really sort of like change management where you're going pretty deep into the organizational structure to help them kind of pivot around these ideas. What, what do we have found is um, just by asking the question, what is one sort of rare breed move or action that you have wanted to take that you have not been able to fully realize where has that been getting stuck and why has it not been realized just by asking that very question and then helping them put into plan, you know, sort of an action plan of how to get that done and fully realize is something that they've been wanting to do, but have felt, you know, resourcing or, you know, red tape, whatever has not allowed them to do that. Um, we also kind of shepherd them through like not only how to identify what that is with the team and facilitate those ideas through the team, but also be able to sort of chart out like, well, what needs to happen in order for that to fully be realized? Uh, and then what would that ultimately do for the organization? So it's really interesting where our work is, is leading in that regard, you know, and those doors are opening, whether we want them to or not. I think people are reading the book, 
again, they're, they're going into their company. They're like, we need this. And Hmm. then we're being brought in to sort of educate and, 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 and inspire. And it's, it's the most rewarding thing I can say we've been doing to be, to be, um, transparent. Like it is the most enjoyable thing we've been able to, to do in our own career. You know, we've worked in hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of companies on brands and brand problems and brand positioning and brand strategy, but to go in and help them see and realize rare breed is way, way more. It's just a more fulfilling act because you get letters from and emails from people every day and phone calls, like text messages where they're like, that was the most inspiring thing I've ever been a part of. And, you know, and not only have you inspired the team, but can you help us actually go and implement it? So Mm. it's, it's cool. And then, you know, I'm, I'm also, we're also working on um, something. It's not, it's not released yet, but we're working on workbooks and training. So if you are in fact um, rebellious as a change maker and you want to, or, or emotional, for example, most, most empaths really struggle with this. Like you're kind of a sensitive EQ person who's, you're, you know, you're feeling the room very differently than everyone else. Um, we're developing out workbooks that essentially tell you how to navigate that trait um, to the best of your ability and also share that with teams so that they can kind of understand like how you move through the world, what you need, you know, and, and sometimes we don't even know that we, we don't even know that sometimes in our very own relationships, right. With our partners, with our friends, with our parents, sometimes we don't even know. We're like, why do we just like butt heads all the time? Well, it's because we don't communicate the same way. You know, we're moving through the world at a different frequency altogether. So when you start to give people some language and tools to be able to to work better and to communicate better, it changes how you see them. You have more empathy for them. You have more understanding of them. And I've seen it firsthand and it's incredibly powerful. I've I've had people who have reached out to me who are the parent of a rare breed. And they're like, can you help me better parent my rare breed? <laughs> and I'm like, well, <laughs> don't have that expertise, but you know, I can, I can certainly give you some, some tools and techniques, right? Like my, my expertise is really in brand culture and leadership, but it's very true. It's, it's, it's how we communicate with our friends and our family and our, and our relationships. And it also very much impacts the way we communicate at work. So uh, it, it's just a powerful, powerful tool that we're finding again and again is opening up these sort of rich veins of opportunity uh, and understanding for those who are who are exploring it with us. Yeah, and uh, I can imagine, I can, and I can really see how how you find that so rewarding. Um, yeah, I mean, in some ways, it sort of mirrors my own experience of getting. I started off as a programmer, and, and now we do a lot of work on you know leadership yeah. development, culture change, and. Yeah, we Love don't it. have the rare breed, you know, lens which well, you do. But now, it's, uh, now you do. Now, now maybe you do. we do. <laughs> maybe we'll become your proxies. You should. In the, you in the British should. Isles. Yeah. yeah. Well, what's funny yeah. is there was no rare breed workshop. Like we, we, you know, a huge organization, so, you know, a change maker picked it up, read it on a flight from New York to LA. And by the time he had touched down, he was like, I want you guys to come in and do this with our, with our organization. And we were like, right, right. <laughs> Of course you do. Um, but there is no workshop. So we, we, we had to create it and, uh, and it was a huge success. So then now we're, we're, you know, now we're perfecting it and, and making it, um, you know, more and more sort of, uh, you know, get, learning like where those levers need to be pulled and, and what people really need. And, um, we've done several of them now and it's, it's, uh, it's very cool to kind of see it sort of 
developing out because it's, um, it really is changing the way organizations like move. Like once they come in, they're not the same as they go out. Yeah. Yeah. No, I can, I can imagine. And it, it feels like it is part of a, a sort of broader movement of like, let's embrace the individual and in, in all that they are and all of their weirdness and all of that, you know, all, yeah. all of it. I think we struck um, at a really interesting time, you know, with uh, the black lives matter, you know, George Floyd, um, you know, everything that's going on in the world right now. I think that we had just kind of the book kind of struck at the right, at the right moment where these conversations are extremely important. And this book really speaks to that, to that acceptance, to that individuality, to that, to that uniqueness um, that we so desperately uh, are, are fearful of. And I just think we've had it at a really good opportune time where this thinking can be, it's becoming so much more than a book clearly. So we're just, we're just riding it. We're just rolling with it. You know, (laughs) it's pretty fun. We have a show too, that we talk, we actually uh, sit down with, um, uh, cultural provocateurs who have leveraged a trait and we go really deep on in the show. Uh, we're just about to launch season two. Our first guest was uh, Tarana Burke from me too. And we go really deep on that vice and virtue at play and how that has given those individuals sort of black eyes along the way and yet kept fighting for that vision and what that really takes. And so it's a kind of a unique lens, you know, on, on exploring the, the rare breed through audio and what it really means to be one and what it, what it takes to be one. Uh, so it's, it's pretty, pretty cool. Yeah. That sounds, that sounds great. Cause it, yeah, because of all of the, all of the great change makers in history, right. It must, you know, we're, we're, we're rare beat almost by definition, yeah. right. Right. Oh, I mean, let's think of the first rare breed that we all know Eve taking that rebellious bite of the apple. <laughs> right. Coming into the world. Yeah. Yeah. I yeah. mean, she started it all, they say. Uh, so, you know, that the, the, the first rare breed ever, you know, defiance. It, it's what yeah. it's what moves the world forward. You have to have someone who's willing to take some of the arrows in the back. Yeah. 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 Anyway, the other thing that's coming through is that there's a guy that you may have come across called uh, Sam Conniff, who's written the book, Be More Pirate. I have heard of that book. Yeah. I don't know him. Yeah. Uh, at yeah, all, but I, but I, I think it's a great book. Yeah. He's, he's also been on the show twice. In fact, with his, um, his first mate, yeah, yeah, <laughs> the together that came up. but it's a very <laughs> similar message. And, uh, I, yeah. the, this metaphor I love of imaginal cells, right. You know, inside, um, a, a, a caterpillar, right. Uh, as it comes to be, before it becomes a butterfly, they have these imaginal cells, right. That they, right. they, uh, start to emerge and they're the sort of butterfly cells, but they get attacked by the immune system of, of the, um, of the caterpillar, but slowly over time they get bit and they, and they start to connect and communicate with each other until ultimately they start to form the, the structure of the butterfly. And that, that comes from Kim Palmer, who, who's also been on the show. But I, I feel like this is what's happening, right? There's, there's like you doing what you're doing. There's, there's some kind of, it's like these imaginal cells are all sort of part yeah. of this movement and we're all kind of communicating with each other through podcasts and different. And, and this, we're part of something. That's how, that's how I feel. Right. We're part of something here that's yeah. celebrating the human at a whole new level. And, you know, we, we, I, we've got to be part I, I of pushing that so. along. I would hope so. I mean, I, I, it's, a, it's a wonderful movement to be a part of. It's certainly wonderful to be someone delivering that sermon and having people come to church and hear it. Mm. Uh, it's, 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 again, incredibly inspiring for us and incredibly rewarding. And, you know, it, 
I, we didn't write the book for that. You know, we didn't, we didn't, yeah. we didn't write the book with the intent. Oh, this is going to become a movement or that, you know, this would be a workshop. Like we weren't well, even I, Well, in fact, there. this is the second iteration, right? The first iteration was more about, it was more design yes. book, right? Well, yes. Yeah. So the first, the first uh, iteration of Rare Breed got rejected 19 times, I think. And it, we had positioned it wrong. We didn't realize this, but, uh, you know, we had, re, we, uh, we had written this, this sort of, proposal and it had you know we got all these rejection letters and we were so defeated because we were like that's such a good concept like why why is it you know why was it rejected and it was because we had positioned it wrong and so we uh we had a a consultant um a guy by the name of mark levy who he actually uh worked with simon sinek on start with why but he had he's known ashley and i since we were kids like literally like we were i think 22 when we first met him um he's he's almost watched us grow up so he helped us uh, with the second iteration of it and w- the first and the second iteration of it. And he's like, <laughs> I was like, we don't want to do it. We're done. We do- we're, we're out. And he said, we had a Skype call with him and he goes, what do you mean you're done? He goes, rare breed is fucking brilliant. He goes, get your ass back to that desk and you rewrite that proposal. You tear it down to the studs and you rewrite that proposal. He's like, you're not giving up on that idea. And we did, we did, we, we tore it down and we completely, what was really funny about it was we, t- we printed out all of the rejection letters and we taped them on the wall around us. And we, we rewrote looking at all of those letters of, you know, of, of, of telling us that, that, you know, they were like, Oh, Sunday actually are great, but you know, this book won't sell. And it, you know, so, and um, you know, it's a good concept, but branding books don't sell. And, you know, we wrote to all 19 of those doubters. You know, that was, that was the, and and when you actually see the cover, right. With the big scribble, it's really like a a fuck you because it, it, it was, (laughs) it's the messy process of what you feel like as a rare breed, uh, you know, navigating life as one, but it was also because we were so mad (laughs) that we scribbled the front of the cover as a kind of a graffiti towards, uh, towards the, um, you know, vandalizing over tradition. <laughs> so, so there's actually story behind why that's a scribble on the front cover to begin with, which is hand done, by the way. Oh, okay. Yeah. And, and so the vandalizing, vandalizing tradition, what do you mean? Sorry. So, so like, you know, rare breeds tend to sort of vandalize tradition, right? They sort of yeah. run through the, run like mm. hooligans through the corridors of entrenched power. And, you know, that scribble is sort of our mark of graffitiing over the norm graffiti yeah. over being told no graffiti over being told that we weren't enough. You know, we were too white, too female, too young, too broke to succeed. And that was that, that scribble is kind of like a, a big middle finger <laughs> to, yeah. to be totally honest. Yeah. But I like that phrase vandalizing tradition. Yeah. And that's kind of what companies, you know, when we bring it all the way back to organizations are finding themselves having to do, over and over and over again they can't rest in the same traditions these traditions right. like have expiry dates that are very very short absolutely yeah yeah no, that's it okay well wonderful thank you so much uh yeah, it's been an you, absolute Richard. pleasure uh so super we, fun. I, it's funny i thought i thought we were going to get into like there's for people go read the book right if you want all the stories from the book of which yeah. there are many we haven't really touched on in the on the podcast that you know the, go, go buy it um because there's a ton and they're great um yeah thank you thank you and um no no thank you um we'll put the notes that are quiz so everyone can um 
check can out take the quiz. Yeah. Rarebreedquiz.com. Yeah, you can check that out. And also you can go to uh, rarebreedleaders.com, which will, um, you can contact us there if you're interested in like a workshop or, you know, just learning about rare breed in general, you know, we can, yeah. we can, we're happy to have anyone who who's interested in that reach out to us and say hello. Yeah. And other rare breeds who Bye. identify as a rare breed. We, we love hearing from you. Okay. Yeah. Wonderful. All right. Well, thank you very much. Thanks. Uh, thanks again. Thanks for writing it. Thanks for um, yeah coming along. Thanks, and, and Richard. Fun so. conversation for sure. <laughs> Great. All right. <laughs> Talk to you soon. Thank you. Bye-bye. The Being Human podcast was brought to you by First Human. For more on First Human's human-focused coaching and leadership programs, head to firsthuman.com.